Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, if you wouldn't, turn to Romans. And the reason I want you to go to the book of Romans is because we're going to talk about the book of Galatians today. But we're going to be in the book of Romans to talk about Galatians. As you know, we've been working our way during the summer through the uh, book of Genesis. And we've been looking at how God has been display or revealing himself and displaying his nature and his character to the world and to his interaction with people. And what our goal is, what the Bible tells us to do, is that when God reveals himself, we are to respond in faith. And we ended last week with probably the greatest example of faith, in humanly speaking, with Abraham as he is called to test his faith in sacrifice of his son. We looked at that last week. You can go to the website and hear that message if you'd like, if you missed it last week. But in it we saw that faith is so important. And Scripture tells us that without faith it is impossible to please God. And so I thought it was a good place to stop there. And I want to tackle the book of Galatians. Galatians is a great book. Uh, it talks about faith. It uses Abraham as an example of what he's faith. So I thought that would be a good segue into it. And as we go through the book of Galatians, we're going to be tackling a subject that is very, very uh, important, as, as we're going to see, at the heart of Christianity. And then we're going to follow up the book of Galatians with the book of James, two books many times that scholars or other people will say are contradictory, that we'll follow through and we'll bookend those and then come back to faith in the summer with the study of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph as we continue through. But you see Galatians, we're calling it called to freedom. Galatians, called to freedom. Galatians derives its title from the region in Asia Minor, and that's in that next slide here as you look at that, in modern Turkey. It's where the churches addressed were located. It's only one of Paul's epistles specifically addressed to churches in more than one city. Now you may, as you look at that, you'll see that that's what we now call uh, Turkey. You may not see it completely there, but that's where we think of Turkey today. And you'll see Galatia is kind of in the middle there. And in the southern part, you're going to see that in Acts chapters 13 and 14, which I encourage you to read this week, and I hope you did that in preparation. You see that Paul founded churches in the southern Galatians cities of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And you may see those there near the bottom, there by Sicilia. Galatian also provides valuable historical information about Paul's background, including his three-year stay in Arabia, which Acts never goes into, his 15-day visit with Peter after his stay in Arabia, and then his trip to the Jerusalem uh, Council, and then his confrontation with Peter. The writer, as we're going to see in verse 1, is the Apostle Paul. Paul, as you may recall from our study in Corinthians, was born in Tarsus, a city in the province of Sicilia, if it's not there any longer, but it's not far from Galatia. Under the famous rabbi Gamaliel, Paul received a thorough training in the Old Testament scriptures and in the rabbinic traditions at Jerusalem. He was a member of the ultra-Orthodox set of the Pharisees. He was one of first century Judaism's 
rising stars until a supernatural encounter with Jesus that changed his life. The main theological themes of Galatians, as we're looking at it from a 20,000 foot level here today, are strikingly similar to the book of Romans, hence why we're going to be in the book of Romans to begin. And what we see in Galatians is we're going to look at the inability of the law to justify or to make one right with God. In other words, it's not by works. We're going to look at the believer's deadness to the law. We're going to look at the believer's crucifixion with Christ, and Abraham is justified by his faith, that believers are Abraham's spiritual children, that the law brings salvation, not salvation, but actually God's wrath, and that the just shall live by faith, and the universality of sin, and the importance of believers bearing one another's burdens. So to read Galatians, really, which is a short six-chapter uh, book, is very similar to reading kind of a synopsis of Romans, which happens to be a little bit larger. Paul is engaged in a battle for the gospel in this letter. He is writing to counter the false teachings of the Judaizers, who were undermining the central New Testament doctrine of justification by faith. Don't you love the big words that we come up with? The Judaizers were Jews who were spreading the dangerous teaching that Gentiles must first become Jewish proselytes and submit to all the Mosaic law before they could become Christians. They were trying to marry the Jewish and Christian religion together. Shocked by the Galatians' openness to that damning heresy, Paul wrote this letter to defend justification of faith and to warn those churches of the dire consequences of abandoning the essential doctrine. Galatians is the only epistle, as it's interesting as we read this, it's the only epistle in which he does not write a commendation to them. That's obvious, a mission reflects how urgently he felt about confronting the defection and defending the essential doctrine of justification. Again, the central theme of Galatians, like Romans, is justification by faith. Again, you need to understand those terms. Many times what you have in, in society and churches today is we want to change those terms. We want to get rid of them and change them to something different. But those words are very important. And instead of saying those are too big or those are not words that people understand, you and I, we need to embrace them. We need to hold them dear. We need to learn them and learn how to express those to others. He also defends his position as an apostle since as in Corinth, false teachers have attempted to gain a hearing for their teaching by undermining Paul's credibility. Now the importance of justification of faith, why this is so important that Paul writes this letter, and the reason why it's so dear to Paul as it also should be to the Galatians and, should do, and also to us as well, Paul answers the question that echoes throughout eternity. How can a person stand before a holy God without being condemned? In short, Paul answers that, quest, that question by saying that it's only through Christ's death through the cross is the answer. We call it the gospel. Twice in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul expressed how important the gospel was when he writes, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Later he would write, For I delivered to you 
on first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, and then on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Yet at the same time, he understood that even the gospel, with its very simple message, with its life-saving and life-changing power, that it would not be accepted by everyone. When he writes, we preach Christ crucified, it is a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's folly or foolish to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And Father, may you just open up our hearts this morning to the power of the gospel. Many times we speak about it here. It's very important here at Orange Villa. It's very important to our hearts. It's very important to our community. To be redundant about the gospel is not something that we should shy away from, but it's something that we ought to proclaim at every breath. So open up our hearts as we understand Galatians. May you speak to us as you spoke to them as they read this letter for the very first time. And may we be able to grasp its truth and its practical ramifications for our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. So the question you may ask is, why is this a big issue? This seems so 2,000 years ago. So what if a church in Asia Minor was, was confused about justification by faith? So what if they had that issue? It's not an issue that we deal with today, and I would have to say... It's not true. As Dustin would be able to share, even in seminary, justification by faith is still today under attack as it was 2,000 years ago. There are several, very many articles being written about it and trying to change it just as it was trying to be changed in that day. And even not talking about ivory tower articles and essays and preachers and scholars and Greek and Hebrew people that are going at battle, you and I find it practically in our churches today. When we teach, it's about accepting Christ by faith, but you also need to do this. We have very many churches and denominations and religious orders who say it's Christ, but also this. We see it in the Catholic Church. We see it in other types of uh, prosperity and wealth and and so on and so forth. It's Christ plus this. And so this is a topic that you and I need to understand. Why do we need justification? Why isn't our works not enough? We sing that old song. I don't know if you know it. it was, if it was good enough for David, it was good enough for me. If it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it was good enough for me. It's an old spiritual hymn. If it was good enough for Abraham and for David and for Daniel, why isn't it good enough for us? And see, that's the place where we fall apart. And Hebrews tries to bring us back, is that it was not the works that they did, but it was their faith that was counted as righteousness. So let's answer this question. How can a person stand before a holy God without being condemned? Let me say it again. How can a person stand before a holy God without being condemned? This is the question that the world is asking. Maybe not in this way, but it is the answer that they need or the question they should be asking. 
I'd like to turn to Job, and you'll see it here on your monitor. I'll give you the story of Job. This is Job speaking after he has been inflicted with, uh, with a lot of boils and sores. He's lost everything. His wife has told him to curse God and die. And in chapter 9, we see three, di two, three different passages. Listen to what Job has to say about God. He says, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He goes on to say in verse 19, If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. He's saying, even if I think I'm blameless, even if I think I'm okay, God shows that I'm not. Look at verse 32. For he, God, is not a man as I am, that I might answer him that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. What a powerful verse. Who are we to stand before a mighty God? Which one of us can take him to court and say, listen, I need someone to stand before. I'm going to sue God. Who are we to stand before him? We have no standing. You see, the problem tells us in Romans. If you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 3. And we're going to go through Romans fairly quickly. Some will be on the screen, some will not. But if you're in Romans chapter 3, you know very quickly where I'm going to go. Verse 10 tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeketh after God. There's no, not one. Look at verse 23. It says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The problem is, is that we cannot stand before a holy God. And even Job understood that. He says, I'm blameless, yet he would prove me perverse. He says, my own, I, I, I am in the right, but, my own, but uh, my own mouth would condemn me. Why? Because even in our own righteous thinking, we understand that there's nothing that's righteous before God. The verdict is very simple. It's very simple. Look at verse 20 of chapter 3 of Romans. The verdict is very simple. We are declared guilty. He says, For by the works of law, no human being will be justified or made right in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What was the law but just a bunch of works? And as we go through here, we'll see the reason for the law and the purpose of the law. But even by the law... It does not make us right before God. And because of our sin, we see in 6.23, Romans 6.23, is that the penalty of sin is death. For it says the wages of sin is death. You see, you and I have a problem is that we cannot stand before a holy God. We are condemned. We have nothing to say. We have no other authority to go to, to plead to. Who is there above God? Who could stand between God and I and declare my case before God? The solution that you and I need is that we need a new declaration. 
For God has looked to each and every one of us and said, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're all condemned. Is that the truth? That's what the Bible says. These are not words we like to hear. They're words and true nonetheless. In Romans chapter 3, verse 22, I'd like to read through what Dustin read earlier. The solution is that we need a new declaration. For he says there is no distinction in verse 22 of chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or made right by God, by his grace as a what? Gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by what? faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what is it we need? We need a new solution. You and I need a new declaration. We have been declared uh, guilty. The wages of that sin is in the Penalty is death, so we need a new verdict. We need to be a, an appeals process. And that's where we come to justification. For what we see here, we're justified by grace. The question you may ask is, what is justification? On the next, on the monitor, you'll look at this. This is a great definition. It's by Wayne Grumman. He says, justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sin as forgiven and Christ's righteousness has belonged to us, and he declares us to be righteous in his sight. Now let's make a clarification. This does not make us right, it's as he declares us right. This is not something within us that says that we earned ourselves to be right, or that there's something about us that's right. It does not change our inner character or our inner nature, it is just a declaration of God. And do you understand the difference? For as he looks again, it says it's an instantaneous legal act in which he thinks of our sin as forgiven. He's wiped it away. That's what scripture tells us. And that's what you and I need is a new legal act by God that says not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. Or probably better yet, forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. That's what you and I need. And that's the heart of the New Testament. That's the heart of the gospel. It's not that you and I are made right with God because of who we were born to. We're not made with, right by, with God because of, of saying a prayer. We're not made right with God by just being baptized or taking communion. We're not made right by God by giving and tithing and going to church. There's nothing that we can do that makes us right before God except for what Christ has done for us. And that's what Paul is fighting against. That's the heart of the gospel. And again, you're saying, Rob, you preached on this quite a bit. Well, it's important. We need to understand it. For the world still does not grasp this. You and I have probably family members, relatives, loved ones, neighbors, and co-workers who have not yet grasped this. They're still working their way. 
And maybe even in the sadder cases, they don't even know that they stand condemned before a holy God. I want to share with you what justification does. I'm going to give you three things. The results of justification. The first thing, because of what God does, God forgives our sin as Jesus pays that penalty. We must make sure, make God known, is that there is a penalty, and that penalty must be paid. Isaiah tells us this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought you and I peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, it was at that point that God took my sin, my attitude, my actions, and my nature, and put it on his son. What was not his was given to him. And that's so important to understand. God forgives our sins as Jesus pays our penalty. Psalms tells us as far as the east from the west, so far does he remove us, our transgressions from us. We don't have to look over our back. We don't have to feel or wait for the, the other shoe to drop. Romans chapter 4, you may have your Bible still at Romans. Look at Romans chapter 4. Look at verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against the Lord will not count his sin. Amen. That's what you and I need. You and I need someone to pay the penalty. What's the wages of sin? Death. God's wrath will be poured out. It must be satisfied. There must be justice. And so one stands up and says, I'll take that penalty. And that's what says it pleased God to do so. And he put forth Jesus as that propitiation. And God forgives our sin as Jesus pays our penalty. Number two, God applies Christ's righteousness and perfect obedience to us. See, here's the great exchange. Look at Romans 5:18 there. It says, "Therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." It's called the the great exchange. Jesus took upon him my uh, sin. What was not his, uh, or what was not his, he took. And what was his, his perfect obedience, his righteousness was then given to me. Now, I don't know about you, have you ever done any type of swaps with people, any type of trading as your kid? Anybody here into baseball cards, any type of sporting cards, anything like that? Cut one, a couple of you. And you know, you're always wanting to get a fair swap, right? You know, what's that? Or you get a better swap, yeah, yeah. You ever saw a TV show, The Barter Kings, where they do that? They're trying to swap up. Well, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to make swaps, and you're trying to make great exchange, and you want to walk away feeling like you got the better deal, right? 
Let me tell you, in this case, to those that God has justified, you get the better deal. For you get something that you did not deserve and did not earn. You get the perfect and obedience of Christ and the righteousness of Christ. Now, that doesn't make you that, but what it does, it applies it to your accounts. That's very important. Hence why the clarification is, he doesn't make us righteous, he declares us righteous, even when you and I do not deserve it. That's what's amazing about grace. So what is the result of justification? God forgives our sin as Jesus pays our penalty. God applies Christ's righteousness and perfect obedience to us. There's no longer need to try to work and earn it. Unfortunately, there are many Christians today that are trying to do that. They're trying to do it by just trying to keep a standard of obedience or trying to keep some certain type of rules. And when we fail, which we always do, we then feel God is against us. And as we saw in Sunday school, that could, not be, that could be further from the truth. Number three is God views us as righteous in his eyes. That's the third result of, of justification. Romans 5 tells us this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Job cried out, Who can stand before a holy God? How can I ever proclaim him? I can't take him to court. If I try to proclaim my own innocence, my own words and my own actions show how guilty I am. What a state to be in. The Bible calls us children of wrath, children of disobedience. One in which it says that his wrath will be poured out on. It says that he's passed over former sins, but there will be a day of accounting, will there not? The Bible says that there will be a great white throne judgment. We will be judged. But in the results of justification, God views us as righteous. We have peace. With God. And that's what Paul understood, and that's what he writes going. We're going to see as we go into Galatians, is that he needed to recognize that there were people in Galatia, in the city, in the church of Galatia, that still did not have peace. They're trying to work it. And I think that's one of the most terrible things of many other types of religions. I think of the Muslim faith. They believe in one God as we do, they believe it's the God of Abraham as we do. They see Jesus as a great prophet, as we do, but yet they don't see him as son. But yet the problem comes in which they say that you have to work your way into the good graces of their God. And even in doing all of these sacraments, they use a different word than sacraments, I, I don't recall what it is, there's a certain amount of events that they have to do, a, you know, one, at least a pilgrimage, at least one time in your life to Mecca, so on and so forth. But yet through all these things, do all of it, they then say it still does not mean that you get to go to paradise. In other words, you never know if you have peace. You ask, how could you stand before God never knowing if you had peace? How could you sleep at night never knowing if you have peace? 
You can understand that in some ways, can you not? When there's troubles in your life with a worker, a husband, a wife, your children, neighbor, maybe another Christian, there's no peace. It gives you some sleepless nights, at least I hope it does. The Bible says don't let the sun go down on your wrath, but many times we're studying and there's no peace in our life. It caused so much turmoil and, and anxiety in our lives, but yet the Bible says that we can have peace. And let me tell you, this is why the gospel is so important. This is what's so important for you and I to be evangelizing and sharing the gospel. Most people do not even realize that they're only just a threadbare away from hell and being separated from God forever. But again, justification does not change our internal nature or character. It just is a declaration of God. That's what the Bible does for us. That's what justification does. Jesus takes our sin as his own. He gives us his righteousness. And then God views us as righteous and says, Now we have peace. You are made now right before God. If you were to go back and look at that Job, I'm, I know that we're not probably going to be able to do that, but back in Job here, if you look at verses 32 through 34, when he says, for he, is not a man as ma- as a, for he is not a man as I am. Can you go to slide six real quickly? Technology, let's see how well we do. He says, for he is not a man as I am. There we go. For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him that he would come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me. I want to share this. I, I, I might have, it's been a long time since I've shared this one. This is one of those instances, Dustin, Dustin, when the Bible came alive to me in a greater way than I ever thought. At this time, I was leading worship. I was leading a youth group. And I was working, though, at the time um, at, a, at a company. And I think it was early in the morning I would read my Bible after I would do some certain things. I would, I would sit down and read the Bible and have a little bit of breakfast. And I think, well, maybe this was at lunchtime. It was a little bit later in the day. Either way, I was reading this passage. I was reading through Job, and I got through this. Now, at the time, I was reading the King James. And in the King James, it says, There is no daysman between us. It doesn't say arbiter. It says daysman. And I'm thinking, what in the world does daysman mean? Now, this is for the age of computers and the Internet where you could just go on there and just Google or Wikipedia daysman. So I did what any good Christian did. I called my pastor. And I said, listen, I'm reading this, and this says daysman. Can you look that up and tell me what daysman is? So he gets out his big old strong coordinates, and he looks it up. And he says, Rob, it means a mediator. And he gave me the definition of what a daysman did. A daysman in those days was someone who would come between two people who had an argument or a problem or a disagreement. And what they would do is the daysman would stand between the two people, he would put his hand on one person and put his hand on the other person and say, okay, what's the problem? What do you mean? And he would then arbitrate or mediate that. Now, when he gave me that, he told me what daysman, I'll have to tell you, my life was just, my eyes open to the wonders of God's word. Because listen to what he's saying. Job is saying, who can stand between God as God's equal and put his hand on God's shoulder and then put his hand on my shoulder and talk to both of us? Who could do that? Who can claim my case? Guess where my mind went to? First Timothy. There's only one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. 
I'll tell you, I got goosebumps as I was eating my lunch and he was telling me about that. In other words, what he's saying is there is one person who can stand before God because he is God and he can stand before man because he was man and say, I understand, Father, the problem. Listen, man, you need to understand this. You're condemned. And then he finally says, you know what? There's no solution. You're damned. Until all of a sudden he says, you know what? Would you accept me? as their substitutes. God the Father said yes. And man just, what? Obviously I'm crucifying something that's not written down in scripture, but you understand what we're looking at here. Job said, who can stand before me? God says, I'll send someone. Christ Jesus. And there's something important about that. That's the importance of justification by faith. Hence why Paul writes a letter to these churches and say, listen, you need to understand this. You need to grasp it. You need to see the error by adding something to it. In the same way it's speaking to us today. Do not make this error. Very simply, the collusion is the gospel offers genuine hope to unbelievers reconciliation and that's what this world needs so we need hope the gospel also gives us confidence that Christ has paid the penalty for our sins and that we have been forgiven and that God now is for us and children, instead of children of disobedience he sees us as children of, of obedience instead of as children of wrath he now sees us as children of mercy a wonderful, wonderful thing to have peace with Almighty God. You're still in the book of Romans, I believe. Turn to Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, look at verse 31. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who makes us right. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us today. What do we see a picture there? Jesus Christ is still a daysman, putting his hand on God and putting us here today and saying, listen to them. They are now declared righteous in your sight. I want to challenge you, this book of Galatians, we should be going through it through the fall and maybe a little bit of the winter. It's only six chapters, I believe, six short chapters, but we're going to take our time and go through there and mine it and understand what the issues are because I believe that even though it's 2,000 years ago, you still find it very active today. It's one thing you can count on Satan. He's not really imaginative and creative. The same errors he's been pushing since the day of the tree, he's pushing today. And so I would challenge you next week as we go into Galatians 1, start reading it with us. Begin just reading that chapter at least once a week, reading through it, praying, God, show me what it is. And then what I'd really like for you to do is to recognize the power and the hope 
that's found in that great doctrine of justification. I'm going to ask you to join with us as we tackle this letter and explore the wonderful implications of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Father, I pray that you would bring us to an understanding of this great doctrine. We speak a lot about it, we talk a lot about it, but many times, Lord, we forget about it or we don't live out its implications. The fact that, that, that Christ took our sin, he paid that penalty, and then God took Christ's righteousness and he gave us that and put it to our account. Nothing that I've done on my own, but something that you did for me, and then there's the result of it is that now you see us as righteous and you make us as your own children. We have peace. Lord, comfort us with that this morning. Let us find hope in that this morning. Let us find motivation to share that with those that we love. Lord, that they could see that they can have salvation through faith alone and not in anything else. We pray that you open our hearts to your word. In your name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.